Man, there are some Sundays you just get up here and you're out of breath. That was quite the worship set, wasn't it? So uh, let's give it up for the worship team one more time. Well, it's the beginning of Christmas here at Great Oaks. If you didn't notice, it's kind of thrown up all over the building. So uh, uh, thank you to all of those volunteers who made our space look fantastic this week and for all the, all the hours that they have put in. But it's in this time of year that we begin to slow down some of the other rhythms of our life, but we pick up in other ways with what feels like endless parties and times with family that just go on and on and on again with all the flavors of cream cheese, right? You know you just put a different flavor in cream cheese and that's how you make all those dips. The stores are busier and there's no escaping Christmas music. It has now infiltrated every radio station you listen to and so some of you love that, others of us are just waiting for January to come back and we get our radio stations back. And I hope that no matter how old you are, there is still something magical about Christmas, about those family traditions, about waking up on Christmas morning and the excitement of the young kids around the tree and the presents and all of those things. But that's not what's most important about Christmas. But I also don't think that's what really distracts us from Christmas. I think some of our distractions from Christmas come from our own expectations in the middle of Christmas, right? It's Christmas, it's December. You guys all know there's a song you're hoping Dave and the worship team will play that you only get to hear once a year. And they, they might change the the music behind it, but you're like, we need to sing this song or it's not going to be Christmas. And then the kids are going to come and sing one Sunday and we've got to have the kids choir and that's what makes Christmas. Or maybe for others, it's Christmas Eve. I mean, can you really have a Christmas Eve service and not end with candles lit and silent night? Don't answer that. It's rhetorical. It's rhetorical. Don't answer that. But maybe those aren't even what's ultimately distracting us from Christmas. Maybe where the real distraction lies is in our familiarity with this story. How many times have some of us heard the story of Joseph, of Mary, of the shepherds, of the angels in the field, of the full inn? We've heard that story. We could tell that story. We know all the ins and outs of that story. And it's just become familiar. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But this season is celebrated. Because 2,000 years ago, a baby was born. A baby that has changed the course of history from the moment he took his first breath. His name is Emmanuel, and it means God with us. Even that phrase is familiar to us, right? Yeah, God with us. That's great, Jason. Have you paused for a minute to think about what it means that God with you and me God, the sustainer of the universe, perfect in every way, holy in every way, all-powerful, stepped out of heaven to come to us as an infant. 
I don't know what really strikes your imagination of God, but for me, it's NASA photos of outer space. I could fall for hours into Google searches about the images that we have found in outer space. I want you to take a look at this galaxy. This was found from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's 4.6 billion light years away from us. And we got a picture of it. You can see through it to a galaxy behind that is 13 billion light years away. I don't even know what that really means. Except it's huge, right? Like that's a huge number. We discovered this image, this galaxy that exists three years ago. The God who stepped out of heaven to become a baby made that. If you were to look at it from the ground, at arm's length, that galaxy is the size of a grain of sand. Take a look at this one. I told you I could, I could fall into this for a long time. The Carina Nebula is a cloud of dust and gas which stars are born in. Now we get to see this again from this new telescope in 3D images that allow us to look through it to see the stars that are actually inside of it that look like they're behind it. This is my best non-astronomy uh, description of what you're looking at. God, who came to be with us, holds all of that in the palm of his hand. That's who's with us. That's who came to live and dwell among us. He needs nothing from us. He's limitless in power and creativity. And yet he became a helpless baby. One of my favorite verses in scripture when we come to the Christmas story is John 1.14. And if some of you know the Bible, you're like, John doesn't even tell the Christmas story. I know, this is a great verse though. John 1.14 says, So the word became human. And made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the father's one and only son. John is saying the perfectly holy without sin. Lacking nothing. God came to show us in a baby. What love that never fails is. He came to be the faithful one that we couldn't be. And to model that for us. He made his home among us. Now I love word pictures. And for this reason, I appreciate what Eugene Peterson does in the message. When he paints pictures for us about the truth of scripture. And he begins John 1.14 this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Let that image sink in for a minute. That house down the street from you, God just bought it. And he's going to move in. He's going to live life and experience life like you do. His kids are going to go to school with your kids. They're going to play on the same soccer team, the same basketball team, the same baseball team. Because he wants to be with you. The God who holds the whole galaxy in his hand. In our 
neighborhood. Have we allowed that truth to resonate inside of us? He's not a God who came on a vacation. He came to forever change the landscape of the world and our ability to be in relationship with him. He came with a mission to accomplish. And he came for you and for me. God could have acted like some cosmic coast guard, floated his helicopter over top, thrown a life preserver down, and said, grab on if you want. But he walked in to our points of pain and celebration and life experience to be with us. And as we walk towards Christmas, We want everyone here to explore together with us what it means that this incredible God came to be with us. So we're going to look at what it looks like for him to be in our realities. And if we're honest, life's not all candy canes and neatly wrapped presents. This season can be filled with grief, with anxiety, Struggles of depression and isolation. There's moments of happiness and new opportunities. There's opportunities in our life when God asks us to take scary steps. And what, we, what I want you to see and what I want to experience with you is that God is with each one of us in those places. So this morning, I want to invite you to dive in with me about what it means that God is with us in our failures. Now, I have three irrational fears in life. I am terrified of heights, I'm terrified of bees, and I'm terrified of failure. Some of you might be like, failure doesn't seem irrational. It really is. We fail every day, or at least every week. Let's be honest. We say we're going to do something and we don't do it. That's failure. Some of us have trophy shelves in our room of all of our trophies that are failure because we didn't make it to the professional sports league, right? So, That's failure. If you were to say, hey, Jason, we need you to set a ladder on this stage, climb to the top of it, and get rid of that bee's nest at the top of the worship space, my life would end as you know it. Like I would just maybe spontaneously combust because I'd be terrified to do any three of those things. Like, can I stand on the ground maybe with a 50-shot can of raid, 50-foot shot can of raid and take it out? But the pages of Scripture are filled with failure. Starting on page three. Page one, God creates. Page two, God creates. Page three, Adam and Eve wreck it. And it just continues from there. But what I want you to see as we take a walk through some of these biblical characters who failed, I want you to hear and know this. Our failures are not the end of our stories. Your failure Your heartbreaks, your disappointments, the times you let somebody down are not the end of your your story and they're not the end of mine. Think about Noah. Great guy, right? He's the one good family that God could find in the whole universe. And he's like, listen, because you're the one good family, you're going to build a boat. And I'm going to wipe out the rest of the world and I'm going to spare your family. So what's Noah do? He builds a boat. 
He gets on it. He survives. He gets off the boat, and then it all falls south real quick. Noah gets stone drunk, passes out, takes his clothes off, and his kids walk in on him, right? Not the story we teach our kids in Sunday school, just so if anybody's curious, right? We just stop at the boat part of that story. But what does the New Testament teach us about Noah? In Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, it says he was among those who received righteousness because of his faith. What about Abraham? God says, I'm going to call you, make you a great nation. You're going to be my people. And this great leader of God's people who God is going to be faithful to lies to save his own life plays favorites with his kids that wrecks havoc on his family for generation after generation. And yet God remains faithful. What about Moses? We'll see if I do this right this time. I kept switching Moses and Noah first service. See how this goes. What about Moses? You know, the guy who led the Israelites out of slavery, pillar of cloud by day, or pillar of Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, leads them out, gets the Ten Commandments. God uses him to lead the Israelites to the promised land. Yeah, but what was Moses before that? He was a murderer who killed an Egyptian for what he was doing to his people. He was full of self-doubt. God, I'm not good enough. Use somebody else. And then he gets in, he's leading them, he's doing a great job, and then he loses his temper and doesn't do what God tells him to do, and he doesn't get to enter the promised land. But God still used this guy to do amazing things. There's his brother Aaron, right? God says he's going to be the first high priest. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. What's Aaron doing? I don't know, guys. I think he died up there. Let's create, let's melt down all of our gold, make a golden calf and worship him. And God's like, you, the guy who led the Israelites into false worship, are going to be the one who teaches them to worship the one true God. Because failure wasn't the end of Aaron's story. There's Gideon, right, who's going to be this guy. He's like, hey, God, I got this big army. And God's like, no, 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 too many. Take this many. Then he whittles it down again, and then he whittles it down again. And he does these incredible things for faith with God, but he has tons of doubt. God, show me again. Show me again. Show me again. What about Solomon? Builds the temple, creates a place to worship God in. When given the choice to ask for anything he wants, doesn't say wealth or power. says, give me wisdom. A thousand women at his disposal every night. I'm not sure that's what God's design was for his life. But God works through his failures. There's always his dad, David. You know, the guy who killed Goliath? Spilled, spared Saul's life on multiple occasions? Is the line that Christ is going to come from, that Jesus is going to come from, Yet in a moment of weakness, he commits adultery. And then to cover it up, he has her husband killed. And yet Acts says David was a man after God's own heart. Our failures are not the end of our story. And you could be like, well, Jason, that's great. Those are all Old Testament characters. Well, if you don't know, sin doesn't end when Jesus shows up, right? Like, we can look at failure in the New Testament, too. Think about Peter, everybody's favorite disciple. He's my favorite, so I just assume he's your favorite. I'm imparting that knowledge on you. It might not be true, but that's my assumption. 
Peter, the guy who fails to walk on water, fails to understand what Jesus' mission is and what he's got to do. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. That has to be a bad day. He's the one who, when Jesus is getting ready to be captured by the guard, pulls out his sword, cuts off his ear in front of everybody. And Jesus is like, hey, Peter, uh, put that away. And he picks up the guard's ear and puts it back on and heals him. And Peter's like, what did I miss? He's the one who promised he would never deny Jesus. And then when approached by a servant girl, denies him three times. It's in that that Jesus meets him in that moment and restores him. Peter becomes one of the greatest leaders of the early church that we've ever known. He preached a sermon where thousands of people followed Jesus. He performed miracles. He taught the early church how to follow Jesus in the face of persecution and trials and struggles. Then there's Paul. Yeah, you knew the guy who wrote the 14, 14 books in the New Testament? Before he was Paul, he was a guy named Saul, and his job was to kill Christians, to round them up, put them in prison, and then stone them. Not the kind of stoning you're thinking about. This is not a legislative thing, right? They're going to throw rocks at them until they're dead, and Saul's going to stand there and watch. But it's in the midst of that that Jesus meets him, changes his life, turns it around, and uses him to plant churches, train pastors, and write 14 books of the Bible. And there's John Mark. Maybe you're not quite as familiar with John Mark's story. John Mark got invited to go with Paul on his missionary journeys. So he's having a great time, everything's going well, and all of a sudden they sail back to this area, they get off the boat, and John Mark's like, I've had enough, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Bible tells us nothing about why he leaves, he just leaves Paul and Barnabas and goes his own way. Maybe Paul's sarcasm got to him, I don't know. Maybe he was homesick, we don't actually know what leads him to go away, but we know that it makes Paul mad because Barnabas and Paul are getting ready to go out again. And Barnabas was like, hey Paul, let's bring John Mark with us. And he's like, no, 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 no. And Barnabas says, you can go with me. And what we find out about the end of John Mark's story is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Can you imagine? The guy who's taken the gospel to the Gentiles, who's planted all these churches, who's now imprisoned, and he says, bring the guy who I wouldn't let come on the missionary journey to me because he'll be helpful. John Mark's desertion wasn't the end of his story. God had incredible things for him, including writing the gospel of Mark. I share these stories with you because if you're here today and you feel like your life is a failure, please know our failures are not the end of our stories. Sad truth is too many of us believe that's true or worse yet, we've been told that by church leaders or people of authority have looked at us and said, you know what, because of that mistake, God can't use you. truth of this book says that's false. 
Maybe you walked in here today and you're walking into Christmas and you feel like a failure because you know you had that job promotion in the bag. There was no way it was yours. You started to tell some people about it. You knew you were going to get it. And then they announced and it was somebody else. And you don't know what to do. Maybe you're walking in here and into Christmas and you're hiding sin in your life that's eating you up on the inside. Nobody else knows because if they found out, you're afraid they'd never ever talk to you. They'd want nothing to do with you. They'd ostracize you and you'd be alone and that's too much. Maybe you're walking into Christmas with feelings of failure because God opened a door. And you know he was asking you to step through it, but it was a big step of faith. It was going to cost. It was a calculated risk. And instead of saying yes, you said, I'm just going to stay here, Jesus, where it says feel safe and comfortable. Maybe you feel like you've failed at being a parent. Because your adult children are out of the house now. And they're not following Jesus the way you want them to. They're breaking your heart. And you'd give anything to be able to go back and fix that. Or maybe you still have kids at home, but they're just so frustrating. You can't wait till they are gone. Because the only emotion you feel like you have left is anger. Maybe you feel like you're failing because you repetitively keep putting work or your own desires or your own ambitions over your family and you keep looking and saying, one day it's going to change. It'll be different next week. Maybe you're entering Christmas and you feel trapped in a space that nobody else knows about. But there's a bottle or a screen in that room that keep pulling you away and that addiction has become your God. And you'd give anything to get out of it, but you feel trapped. The truth of Emmanuel, God with us, is that the holy, perfect creator of the universe is in that space with you. And he doesn't want you to stay there. And his desire is not for you to feel stuck there. It's that God who took Peter's mistakes, who took Paul's mistakes and nailed them to a cross and left them hanging there so that they could be free, so that they could have a brighter future so that they could have a new identity. Listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth. I passed on to you what's most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures say. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. This baby in a manger is no ordinary baby. 
This baby is God Almighty who has moved into our neighborhoods, who went to the cross to pay for your mistakes, my mistakes, my failure and your failure. He's taken it all. He's nailed it to the cross. He left it there. He forgave us. He walked out of the tomb and conquered it forever so that we can have a new identity, so we can have hope for a brighter future. This baby that we celebrate is God Almighty in our neighborhood. And if we want to experience more joy this holiday season, it starts by accepting wise counsel. Think back to David's story. Maybe you're familiar with this part, maybe you're not. David has an affair, kills her husband in battle, and a year goes by. And in walks the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells David a story about a poor man who owns one little lamb. He saved up all he had to buy that lamb for his family. And there's a rich man in town and he has tons of herds and flocks and all he could want. But he sees this man's lamb and he's getting ready to have a dinner party and he's like, I want that lamb to serve to my guests. And so he goes and takes it from the poor man. David's angry. He wants to avenge the wrong that he sees that's been done. And he looks at Samuel and says, tell me who that is so I can go and do something about it. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Can you imagine what it felt like to be Nathan in that moment? If this goes wrong, you're dead and nobody knows this conversation even happened. It's already happened to Uriah. But Nathan in love confronts David and he doesn't tell him it's going to be easy. He continues on if you read the story and says, listen, that one-year-old baby is going to die. Your family going to be a hot mess. Not the literal translation, but read the story. He's a hot mess. And violence is going to be the rest of your life. But David took it. David listened to that wise counsel. The author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 27, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Who in our lives can say the hard things we need to hear? Who can call us out and begin the change that leads to repentance like David experienced? Who can walk into your life and be like, listen, your anger is out of control. You're hurting people. Or your pride is on overdrive right now. 
Who gets to call us out on those things? And when they do, will we respond the way David did and humbly admit our faults? It's not enough to just have wise counsel. We actually have to listen to it. Listen to Paul's words again in 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our God was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Jesus Christ. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came in to the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's humility is on full display here. You might look at this and be like, he's a little over the top though, right? Like the worst sinner? Like, which just to clarify, we're all sinners. Every one of us makes a mistake. Me, you, all of us. So Paul's really saying, I've sinned worse than anyone who's ever lived. That's the level of humility he's showing. That's what he's teaching us. I mean, how many of us are going to excuse our sin? That's not that bad. Have you seen that guy? I'm a lot better than that guy is. Or we self-defeat ourselves and we just pile it on. I'm horrible. There's no way God could love me. There's no way this could happen. Humility is that middle-of-the-road place where we own our mistakes and we seek to get out of that pit through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter knew this. Listen to his words. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Peter knew a little bit about pride. He's the one who looked Jesus in the eye at the table and said, listen, if all of these other 11 desert you, I'll be right here. I'll never deny you, Jesus. Let him kill me with you. First chance. Servant girl. I'm out. I don't know the guy. Peter had to come face to face with his pride. When he swam from that boat to the shore and he had breakfast with Jesus that morning. We live in a world where pride and arrogance are celebrated. Signs of power, confidence, strength. But God with us in the midst of our failure means we have to humbly own our mistake. The last thing. We have to believe Jesus is who he says he is. This is probably the most important. If you miss the other two, this one matters the most. Unimaginable transformation came to Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Peter, Paul, David, and all the others because they believed God could do more through and in them despite what they've done than they ever dreamed. Paul says to Timothy, I acted in my unbelief. My question is, are we doing the same thing? 
Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe God died for you? Do you believe he wants something better for you? Because I'm telling you, the God who holds the universe in, the hand, in his hand stepped into our experience, into the midst of our pain and failure so we could know we're loved. That's who Jesus is. God on a cross who walked out of a grave so we could experience unfailing, unending love. So we could receive a new identity. So that when we walked out of the grave, our hope for a better future was secured. Your failures and my failures are not the end of our stories. And if you feel like they are, I want you to know God has a plan for you. He's with you. And you can experience new life on the other side of those. And it starts by answering these three questions. Am I willing to believe Jesus loves me? Am I willing to humble myself and admit my failures? And will I allow others to speak truth in my life? If the answer to these three questions is yes, then I promise you, based on the truth of God's word, he will meet you and be with you in the midst of your failure. And you have a bright hope for your future. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, when we think about the times we mess up, we just want to ignore them sometimes. Sweep them under the rug and pretend like they don't exist. And yet, God, that's not what you did. You stepped out of heaven. You pulled the rug back, looked at the mess, picked it up and took it to the cross on your shoulders so that we could be free free to experience love, free to live again, free to be whole. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for not standing far off, but thank you for walking into our hurt and our pain and meeting us there, but loving us enough to pull us up out of that and transform our lives. God, I pray that as we walk through this holiday season, we would never forget that you are with us even in our failures. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we close service today, we're gonna celebrate communion. As you prepare to come to this table and receive the bread and the juice, I want us to pause for just a minute and remember who was at that first table. James and John were there. Sons of Thunder. Do you think you get the nickname Sons of Thunder without being known maybe for your temper? And Jesus looks at James and John and says, this is my body. Each time you eat it, 
do this in remembrance of me. He welcomed them from their failure to new hope. Matthew's there. The tax collector, that's the nice name for him. He's really just a thief who steals what he wants from everybody. Jesus offers him the same bread. Thomas is there, the one who won't believe that Jesus has raised from the dead until he can stick his fingers in the wounds. Peter's there, bold and brash in his desire to follow and never abandon. And Jesus reaches out the cup and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. Each time you drink, do this in remembrance of me. And he gives Peter, the one who will turn his back on him in just hours, that cup. Maybe the most powerful reminder, Judas is there. The one who will betray Jesus. Jesus reaches out the bread and offers it to Judas. And Judas turns and walks out of the room. You don't have to be perfect to come to this table. You have to believe that Jesus was. You have to be humble enough to know that you need a savior. And it's his body and his blood that gave us just that. It's Emmanuel that we celebrate as we come to this table. So if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, you are welcome to come. And we would love to celebrate communion with you today. If you're here today and you're like, I didn't think I've ever heard anything like this before. I'm not sure I knew God loved me. I'd love to talk to somebody further about that. There will be prayer workers on the sides of the room and our staff will be in the back. And we would love to pray with you. Maybe you just need to sit in your seat for a minute and let God's Holy Spirit work in your life. You do that. There's lots of ways we can respond to the truth of God's word through communion, through prayer, through conversation. Some of us respond by giving back to what God, by giving back what God has given to us. So if you came prepared to do that today and that's how the Holy Spirit is leading you, there are three ways to give. They're on the screen behind me. You do that at your convenience. But as you're ready, come and receive the elements. The table is ready. And when you're ready after that, Stand and join us in song.